0: Welcome to our podcast from the Arc Insider, the africa Focus podcast, offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter, Tara O'Connor, the Managing Director of the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. We both live, breathe and work African affairs and our podcast aims to stimulate ideas amongst those who share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, welcome. It's good to connect with you again.
1: Very good to speak to you, Karen. And speaking to you from sunny France, where spring has finally sprung.
0: Well, our podcast this week unashamedly focuses on the COVID-19 pandemic, nearly a year since this podcast actually began. South Africa, the epicentre of the pandemic on the continent, is undergoing a major vaccination programme as we speak. And we're excited to have one of the world's leading scientists involved in the response joining us. But first, though, as always, to news. And let's remind ourselves of some of the main stories to have hit the headlines since our last podcast.
2: We have breaking news now. News just reaching us says that a military aircraft, King Air 350 has just crashed at the Namdi Azikiwe International Airport in Abuja after a report. The head of Guinea's health agency has announced that Guinea is in the midst of an Ebola epidemic situation with seven confirmed cases in
0: the West African nation, including three deaths.
2: One student has been killed and 41 people have been abducted by a group of unidentified gunmen in Nigeria. Nigeria. On Tuesday night, the bandits attacked a local school in the Niger region. The UN will
0: press the United Arab Emirates about Princess Latifa, who says she is being held hostage in a secretly recorded video obtained by the BBC. United Airlines is grounding its Boeing 777 airplanes after yesterday's engine explosion over Broomfield. Federal regulators are ordering more inspections for that type of plane with the same kind of engine that failed yesterday. And in the last few hours we've learned Boeing itself is saying those planes shouldn't fly until inspections change. Well, picking up on one of those stories, the Nigeria abduction, as we speak, Tara, there's been a fresh wave of abductions in the past, what, 24 hours. The security situation's definitely deteriorating. Armed abductions with the kidnapping of 40 people, including students from the Niger state in the northwest of the country. And add this to other recent security lapses when you might remember a bus was hijacked and 21 people were kidnapped and a raid on a village killing 11 people and abducting 20 others. It's certainly a very sinister pattern.
1: Yes, and and kidnapping has been a growing problem in Nigeria. It really picked up in the the mid-1990s. But this kind of mass kidnapping is becoming more frequent in many parts of the country. And these kidnappers have become more indiscriminate, abducting villagers who've got little money to pay them, Um, But really, it's a a means of putting pressure on the government, because the governing authorities in recent cases have been paying off and paying paying ransoms. And we can expect more of this, unfortunately, as the country gets pushed greater into poverty through the effects of COVID-19.
0: Yeah. Let's move on to Zambia. It's got elections uh, on the horizon in August and its economic situation is
1: deteriorating dramatically. Tell us more, Tara. Well, you know, Zambia's debt situation has become extremely problematic and it's having all sorts of adverse effects on the business and economic environment with uh, the currency collapsing and really the government is doing very little to get the economy back into uh, onto the straight and narrow, as it were. So it's called on the G20 for help with its debt. And if you Remember, Zambia is the first country, first African country that actually missed a payment on a eurobond in November, and the first African country to default really on its uh, on its debt. And so, it's called on the G twenty for help, and the IMF um, is consequently in town to try and get a handle on the exact size of of Zambia's debt. I think Zambia has got to really be honest about how much uh, of the government's actual debt is to China and also how much the the government purchase of a copper mine from one of the global mining giants, Glencore, will add to that debt. And very few analysts expect the IMF to agree or finalise a deal with the Zambian government until after these critical elections in August. Briefly, one
0: more story, um, bad news. Ebola has broken out again in Guinea for the first time since 2013-2016 when over 11,000 people from across the West African region lost their lives. It's um, an epidemic situation that's been declared with seven cases confirmed as we record this, including three deaths. Remember, Ebola is that highly infectious hemorrhagic disease. It hit its height in 2015 and it was the first international response with travel bans, disrupted international travel, closed schools and business. You might remember that time. Much of West Africa was disrupted, but there is a little bit of good news on this because some 11,000 Ebola vaccines are to arrive in Guinea's capital, Conakry, within the next few days, um, with a vaccination campaign expected to start within four days of the outbreak. So by the time this podcast goes out those health workers will be going from village to village, being able to vaccinate the people. That was a very, very different picture to what we saw back in 2013.
1: Absolutely, and it marks one of the lessons learnt from the original Ebola outbreak and quite a remarkable, remarkable speedy response. You're listening to The ARK Insider,
0: the africa Focus podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Now, our guest on the podcast this week is an internationally renowned scientist, recognised for her work on, amongst other things, vaccines, HIV prevention and reproductive health. Professor Helen Rees has been a champion of public health and ethical evidence-based approaches to medicine throughout her illustrious career and has been feted with some of the highest honours for services to science and health, including the Order of the Baobab in South Africa and an OBE for her contributions to global health. Right now, though, she's one of the leading scientists in the world of Covid-19, a broad member of the vaccine alliance Gavi, which created the COVAX facility, which supports the development, distribution and equitable pricing of vaccines. She's also a vocal critic of richer countries, which have sought to hog Covid-19 vaccines for themselves. Professor Helen Rees, welcome to The Arc Insider and thank you for sparing us a few minutes during this extremely busy time. Thank
2: you very much for having me and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you.
0: You've got me here in South Africa, my colleague Tara O'Connor in France. This is a truly global podcast and I have to have a moment of, um, we call it Shiro worship, because I'm particularly excited to have you on the podcast because I met you back in 2000 in my BBC days covering global health when the HIV research unit at Witts University, which you led, was really just a handful of people. Now it's a major research establishment and I guess the lessons learned from South Africa's experience with HIV AIDS and the debate about equitable access to treatment really do resonate globally today, don't they, as the world battles with COVID-19. So my first question to you is, how much really is there a sense of panic behind closed doors about getting on top of this pandemic, given issues of equitable access, not to mention the fact that the virus is mutating?
2: Well, I I don't know if if panic is the right word, but I think there is a huge concern. Um, So there's certainly a scientific concern about the emergence of variants and where that might take us to. And there's a very big concern about whether the vaccines that we've currently got are going to be uh, effective enough. We know that some of them will be effective. We think that many of them won't be as effective against the variants that we're seeing that emerge from South Africa. Um, compared to the original virus that they were designed to to prevent and protect against Uh, so so I think that that is a concern and I think a different kind of almost category of concern is this issue of access to vaccines Um, because until very recently the African region had virtually no vaccines and yet you know tens of millions of vaccines have been rolled out in in rich countries so so that is a political concern, it's an activist concern, it's a civil society concern.
0: The parallels with the HIV-AIDS debates about access to medicine you know, are there for, for everyone to see.
2: Certainly, certainly. And it's interesting that in fact in terms of civil society mobilisation, both globally and here in South Africa... It has uh, quite a lot of that uh, mobilisation has come from um, people who are also HIV/AIDS ac- activists as well, because mm-hmm. uh, they mm-hmm. have historically mm-hmm. been some of the most vocal, well organised and effective lobby groups. They form themselves into large uh, regional and global networks now, so that they can start to demand for vaccines, but also start to explain vaccines to communities who have you know, varying degrees of acceptance and confidence versus concern. I
0: just wanted to get your view, given the fact that historically there'd been this uh, suspicion about big pharma, if you like, and the, the profit motive for developing um, treatments in the case of HIV, AIDS, now vaccines. Um, there's a proposal at the World Trade Organization, which is backed by South Africa and India, to waive patent restrictions on the manufacturing of more vaccines. The argument being that if you drop the patents, um, you can build on the existing capacity, you can increase um, production and manufacturing and basically get more um, vaccines into the system more quickly. Is that an oversimplification?
2: Well, as you say, if we go back to the days of HIV, uh, we had no access. We had no access to antiretrovirals, they were far too expensive. And uh, the developing world, and particularly the African region, where HIV was by far the, the worst and most severe um, epidemic, we, we, we didn't have access for a long time to any drugs at all, which meant that the mortality was terrible. And as a result of that, the pressure that was brought to bear on the pharmaceutical industry meant that certainly some com- companies um, started to share their intellectual property, started to um, lower prices, to look at tiered pricing, and so on. So we have a we do have a model where that in the, in in the sense of a, a similar emergency where millions of people were dying, we have a model there that says that it is possible for the pharmaceutical industry to, to look at their current operating model in the context of a pandemic. Different issue is in the everyday world of, of, of how pharma, big pharma works. Um, and that's almost a different discussion. But I think there is truly a discussion to be had here to say, if we want to get vaccines out to the whole world, which is a massive advantage. I mean, we know that um, every, every month we're losing you know, hundreds of billions of dollars the world, the world economy is just bleeding. We're going to lose trillions, 9.3 trillion um, in, in a year. Uh, so it makes sense if you're a part of the pharmaceutical industry to stabilise and stop this pandemic so that the, 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 the previous relationships um, in terms of how pharma works uh, can resume. But at present circumstances... Uh, it would make sense, it makes economic sense in my, to my way of thinking, that they should think about creative ways to uh, share their intellectual property so that we can more rapidly get vaccines out to the whole world.
1: And just on to that, you know, getting vaccines, obviously that's uh, that has just launched in a very big way um, in South Africa, that the first of the vaccines have arrived. We've seen it launch, um, but how is it going?
2: We were going to roll out the AstraZeneca, and it seems to be serving, for example, the UK very well in terms of the early data that we're seeing. The problem was that we had laboratory data that suggested that the variant, the new virus, could escape from the, um, the antibodies of, of, of that were generated from the vaccine. Um, and then we had a small study, and it, in, in vaccine terms it was a small study, only 2,000 people, but it was a South African study, um, which half of the study was done before the variant arrived and half, if you like, when the variant arrived. And when you looked at it with very small numbers, real limitations in, in, in the study, it did suggest that the vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, had very little effect, very little protective effect against mild or moderate disease. But what we don't know is whether that same vaccine is going to work against severe disease, because we certainly know in the UK setting, it certainly does. So because of that, uh, we had to rapidly change from about being about to roll out the AstraZeneca vaccine to find an alternative. And so we used, we're using the Johnson and Johnson vaccine at the moment we're using doses of the vaccine that were designed for clinical trials so it's it's what's called an open label trial but we're targeting like many other countries frontline healthcare workers
0: the government got the south african government got a lot of rap about that about this pivoting and having to change but actually science is evolving on this as you say and actually in many ways it's quite a courageous move to say well we're not going to go ahead with a vaccine that's not particularly effective so on the basis of that small trial and we're going to wait and we're going to wait until we get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and there were all sorts of stories in the press that were quite critical and it's not often that I step in to defend the South African government but you know or any government for that matter but it did seem that you know there was always a danger that the politics over overrise the science and this time really the the, the leadership did seem to listen to the science
2: well you know and it's difficult to interpret the science i mean that's the other problem is that we don't know if a very small study that shows reduced um, protection against mild and moderate disease means that it won't protect against severe disease because the mechanisms of protection from the immune system could be different. Um, we simply don't know that. <clears throat> but um, the, the feeling was that, with nearly uh, just under 100% of, of all our infections being caused by the variant now, um, that it, it would be better to try and find a vaccine where we had data that suggested that the vaccine is effective against the variant. And the Johnson & Johnson is is the only, uh, is, well, one of two vaccines where we do have clinical data, which does suggest that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will protect against the variant. And a bit like the flu vaccine, you might need to have a different vaccine it, at different exactly. points of time
0: as the virus mutates.
2: Well, in fact, that's happening now. Many of the AstraZeneca we mentioned, the Pfizer vaccine, many of these vaccines are now, uh, the Moderna vaccine, they're rapidly, Uh, trying to also modify their vaccines to uh, accommodate the the variant.
1: And presumably, most of Africa's uh, main methods of controlling the the spread of the virus remains the lockdown, uh, the sort of very crude lockdown and preventing of the spread at the moment, um, because of the absence of available vaccine. Many countries in the region now, we're seeing this very sharp acute
2: Second wave which for many countries like South Africa is much bigger and much more acute than the first wave Um, And in some countries certainly that's been driven by by the variant, which is spread which has now spread to 32 countries Uh, Not all countries have got local transmission a lot of countries. It's importation but we are seeing that these variants as we know are more transmissible
1: and therefore it makes the spreading of uh, of getting a vaccine out into into these very populated areas north of the Limpopo much more important and in that we are starting to see a little bit of uh, of an increase in in vaccine diplomacy i wondered what you thought about the uh, the the china you know china delivering to zimbabwe Uh, its vaccine and the recent French president's promise of European countries donating 5%. uh, It seems a drop in the ocean compared to what's needed.
2: It it might be a drop in the ocean, but I think that the change in dialogue, if we compare this to, say, uh, two months ago, where there there weren't donations and uh, rich countries were were hoarding, still are hoarding vaccines, uh, there's a G7 meeting going on as we speak where this is being discussed, uh, hosted by Boris Johnson. And what is being discussed is, is what do the richest countries of the world do to ensure equitable access? So I think there are already sort of uh, three, three things that make absolute sense. The first is the moral imperative. And a lot of people are starting to talk about that. And President Macron also spoke about this. Um, and the, um, the, the DG of WHO talked about this being, uh, you know, just morally indefensible to let huge swathes and huge populations of the world not have access to vaccines while other countries are vaccinating everyone, everyone, including people at extremely low risk of severe disease. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is from an epidemiological point of view, uh, if. No, no country will ever be able to, to, to protect through vaccination 100% of its citizens. Some people will refuse, others won't be able to have the vaccine, and none of the vaccines are 100% effective, even the best of them. So there are always going to be susceptible people in rich countries. Um, and if you do nothing much to support the African region, then we will see, once again, exportation of, of, of uh, the COVID-19 virus into rich countries and into susceptible populations. And this cycle will continue and continue. So that's the second reason. The third is, as I've already said, the the economics. You know, to to have the world shut down as it's been, uh, huge losses of jobs and huge pushes of people into poverty, Um, people, you know, losses of, of life expectancy, the economics of this are huge and profound. So if, If a country's not swayed by the moral argument, they might well be swayed by the economic, and they should be swayed, all countries should be swayed by the epidemiological argument, because that means no one is safe unless we are all safe.
0: It's reminded us, hasn't it, of the interconnectedness of the world, the need for global organizations, multilateralism, really to make societies function. Um, Thinking of a bigger picture, does that bring you some relief? in terms of the the recalibration of society if you like you know it's not that it took a covid-19 pandemic to make it happen but sometimes there are big shocks like that that basically jolt societies into action
2: I, I certainly agree and you know we went from i think a very strong feeling of global solidarity right at the beginning through to this this very strong swing to sort of vaccine nationalism and hoarding and you know enough vaccines for four times over for my population but none elsewhere We had the COVAX facility, we were really excited about it, but then concerns that we weren't getting enough money in, we weren't getting the vaccines. But now I think there is a recalibration. COVAX has, as we sit here, has just received $4 billion from the White House. It's got 1.1 billion vaccines, uh, the Novavax vaccine. Um, We've got the G7 talking about what they're going to do. I think China's actions of donating vaccines have shaken shaken you know the global world order a bit up to say you know that there's also that perhaps that's the fourth thing you know the the trade war. people
0: are talking about a a, vac- a vaccine arms yes, race almost yes, emerging yes. between and, the and, and, what, and what that can be China in terms of buying
2: goodwill um uh, so mm-hmm. so i think that's a you know a fourth consideration that, that that's obviously at play and as i say um president macron also made reference to that so I think that we we're entering a new era where that loud voice and demand, I think, has begun to be heard and hopefully will pay off. But we have to do this rapidly. We've got to get vaccines out into the African region rapidly. Otherwise, you know, some of the estimates, the way that we were looking at things a few months ago, were that you know some countries would never ever have enough COVID vaccines for their populations, um, and that is you know with a with a virus that's as clever. Um, and as vicious as the COVID-19 virus, we, we, we can't allow that to happen because then we are going to be sitting with a pandemic for years.
0: In many parts of, of Africa, there is a weak regulatory environment for medicines and there's a huge market for fake treatments, fake pills, fake vaccines as well. The World Health Organization estimates that there's a market for falsified medicines that could be up to 15 percent of the global pharmaceutical market. So with such weak regulation, how do you make sure that the continent um, is protected from fake drugs, fake medicines, fake
2: vaccines in this time of need? One of the portfolios I hold is that I chair the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, which is the drug regulatory authority uh, for South Africa. Um, So I I think there are a couple of things that are encouraging. One of them is that um, over the last, I would say, 15 to 20 years, um, but, but certainly in the last 15 years, we've seen a real strengthening of African regulatory authorities, drug regulatory authorities. We also saw the establishment, particularly after the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, of um, a coalition of drug regulatory authorities led by the World Health Organization called Averif. That was very important during the Ebola outbreak because they collectively reviewed things like vaccine trials um, amongst all the affected countries. So we've got much more of a framework of uh, so, so, uh, regulatory support, sharing of information, etc., cetera. Um, and much more of a recognition, I would say politically, of the importance of drug regulatory authorities. So that's the good news. And there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes in the African region between regulators now, as we speak around COVID vaccines, therapeutics, and so on. So that's, that's encouraging. But what you said is true. Uh, when you have a pandemic, you have the good guys and the bad guys, and the bad guys are out, frankly, to exploit. And we've seen this with the protective gear. Um, we've seen it with um, shoddy oxygen uh, machines. We've seen it with diagnostics. So, and we've heard reports, for example, recently in the last week in China of arrests being made of people making fake vaccines. So you, we are definitely going to get people attempting to make fake or counterfeit products. Um, and import them into countries with weaker regulatory systems. So this is something that we're that we we're, at the moment what we're tackling is providing uh, preventing um, obstruction to the re- to the registration of of vaccines. So we're trying to support all the regulators to fast track vaccines to fast track clinical trials. That's the priority now. But I think you're quite right. There will be a second priority soon, which will be to say we need to make sure that the vaccines we receive are indeed what they say they are and they're of good quality and they're not uh, somebody trying to make a quick buck.
1: Professor, is one of the other things that has come that's been very notable and this is across the world, and we are seeing an uptick in this is vaccine vaccination wariness across across Africa, and particularly concerns in muslim countries in countries where islam is quite um, is prominent uh, suspicion that the vaccination is not halal for example, and sort of false information which is increasing vaccine wariness. And obviously the population's readiness to have a vaccine is, is critical, is it not? Absolutely. And But I think there's a sort of continuum. And I think on the one end of
2: the continuum are the, the sort of really hardline anti-vaxxers, people who hate vaccination way before we ever had COVID, um, who see uh, conspiracies and spread conspiracies and spread misinformation. That's one group and that's not by any way the the largest. That's a small group, but they have become powerful because of social media, because they are putting out misleading information. But I think what you're talking about are are the many people who are asking legitimate questions, things like, did we develop these vaccines too quickly? How do we know that they're safe? Will they be safe in the elderly? How do we know they're going to work? How long will they work for? What will the side effects be? So those are legitimate questions. And the way to deal with those questions is to be to be very transparent and honest about what we do know about the vaccines at the moment, what we don't know, and we still have to learn, but also how we are dealing with those legitimate questions. So for example, safety, we're globally monitoring worldwide safety, and we've we've got a collective way of putting all the safety data together. So should there be a signal that's a very rare signal that you might only see in a million people who get a vaccine, if that repeats itself, we'll be able to start to see that signal and that coordination is happening through uh, a WHO-linked process. So, so, but I think the other thing is that we, we must find the right people to put out the messages around uh, vaccination and building confidence. You know, I, I'm a scientist. I, I, I'm a woman of a particular age. I live in a particular country. Um, am I the right person to speak to? You know, the youth? Absolutely not. They wouldn't. You know, I'm not the right person. I can I can be a backup act, but I certainly shouldn't be the lead act. So I think that we we really do need to find, you know, the the right messages. In South Africa, for example, if we if we target the over sixty fives. Many people will have uh, sort of some, but probably limited literacy in some cases, not have English as a first language, never have had a vaccination themselves before possibly in their lives. We need to find the right people to convey the message to a target population who've never had a vaccine like this in their in their adult lives. Um, and, and so that is part of what we have to think about. If we're going to counter uh, the, the mis-messaging And if we're going to give true and honest messaging, we've got to find the right messengers. Um, And and that's something that many countries will now have to think about. You've been incredibly
0: generous with your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Rees. Fascinating, a gripping tale and hopefully a speedy resolution.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. And I should just tell you that I was a doctor activist long before I was a doctor scientist. So (laughs) I've gone full circle. (laughs) It's in the DNA. It will never go away. You're quite right. Thank you so much for this conversation. <laughs> Many thanks
0: and best of luck and stay Thank safe. Thank you. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at ARC produces a daily chronology of events as well as reports and briefings about the region. And sign up for this at info at And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.